while the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit in another place. Did we hear and please the one who is the poor to say, stand there or sit at my feet? Have you not made distinctions among themselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in the faith? and be heirs of the kingdom of God that he has promised to those who love him. And But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that has been invoked over you. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit to sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let me first of all give thanks and glory to God for the opportunity to be back here at Montreat. I uh, used to do a lot of things here. Uh, I preached here often at one time. Uh, my daughter was a part of the club's program, and she even worked in helping to coordinate one of the uh, youth conferences that used to be held, actually, a uh, middle school conference at uh, Presbyterian College. My wife has preached here on several occasions, and as a matter of fact, we preached together on this stage for a week of the youth conference. And then I got old and nobody invited me to come back to the youth conference. <laughs> and so now I have to preach on a Sunday morning and I'm preaching to adults and I've had to re-gear in order to know even what to say this morning in this place. And then they sent me to a place called Louisville, Kentucky to lead the denomination. My God, the job description really did not tell me all that I was supposed to be doing. And so today it is really good to be able to come back to Montreal and to be able to be in this auditorium once again, not only to preach but to see individuals who I know and have known throughout the church had an opportunity to work with over the years. 
And I also am thankful that still youth conferences are continuing in this place, but also other educational activities. And of course, to be with the staff and the leadership here is certainly a joy. Thank you for this invitation and this opportunity to preach the word of the Lord today. This morning, I want to take some time to just talk through a few things that the gospel lessons have lifted up in my heart. And I want to be able this morning to speak truthfully about where we are with regards to not only Christendom, where we are with regards to the issues of faith in the 21st century. I understand that Tom R. was here last week and Denise Anderson the week before. So that means that this platform is pretty warm. And so I feel pretty good this morning. We are today in some significant times in Christendom. And yet, amid all that we are doing, the Scripture still guides us and reminds us not only as to who we are, but whose we are. The calling upon the community in the text just read from James is a contrast, in a sense, from what the believers in that community understood their purpose to be with regards to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This letter from James really is, in a sense, a rebuke of that community of faith, raising the questions of what is really the essential purpose of serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. James, who is often believed to be the brother or stepbrother of Jesus Christ, really begins in a sense to pick up where Jesus left off and to reassert the word that Jesus sought to live throughout his life. It was a calling in a sense to engage the otherness of the other, as Hans Rudi Weber would say. It is the recognition that we are called in a sense to give thanksgiving to God, not simply through our words and our prayers, but to give thanksgiving to God through the way we act in our own lives and how we are actors in the context of the greater world and society in which the Lord has been so gracious to allow us to live in. It is the recognition that we are called to do a special task and a special service in our lives to serve the Lord with all that we have. As the scriptures would say, with all our heart, soul, and our minds. And then to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In reading the text for today, uh, James begins to lay out, in a sense, what really are the benchmarks of the faith. For if a person has gold rings and fine clothes and comes into an assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of them wearing the fine clothes and say to them, have a seat. 
then you have pleased God. James is really setting the tone throughout all of his letter to the church as a reminder that we are called to reach beyond ourselves. And he uses, in a sense, a strange example for the life of the church because if we know the church in North America, oftentimes our churches are divided on socioeconomic lines. He is saying, in a sense, we then have a responsibility to break the habits of what it means to want our kind in the life of the church and offer and extend the invitation to those who may be locked out and left out and broken and beaten down by the society in which they live. He reminds them that their work is to be in the name of Jesus Christ, to not make judgments about others, to not discriminate against the poor. And yet he reminds us even to be, be faithful in all that we do as we witness to the remainder of the world. I'm also intrigued when we begin to think about what it means in the life of the church in a world that we are in, a world where too many have too little, a world in which school children can go to school every single day of their life with perfect attendance and still not get a high school diploma. A world in which mothers and fathers can work every day of their lives, be punctual in what they're doing, and yet work hard on that job to maintain what they have and still not be paid a wage that can buy them food and clothing and clothe their kids and send their children to college. I'm amazing that, it, it is amazing to me that even now uh, there are situations in which individuals who have students in their home who are looking to go to college will send them to college and they will come back with ninety dollars and $80,000 worth of debt to get an education. It's amazing to me that we are living in a culture and a climate right now where we are dealing with the issues of the money mill being the place of power in what we call the land of the free, the home of the brave, in which we boast of all people being able to have opportunity. James is saying that this equation, yes, there is something wrong with that in the world, but there is also something wrong when we in the life of the church honor that tradition and forget those who are closest to us, those whom we are called to love, which is everyone who has a breath on this side of heaven. I contend that theology has no real meaning or relevance unless it is practiced. James reminds us that our own calling to faith is to demonstrate the faith of love, the love that comes from Jesus Christ in our lives, the love that touched the lepers, the love that risks him being put out of his own community because he engaged those whom the community said should not even be touched. 
What does it mean to live our lives without risk? What does it mean to live our lives without seeing the damage that is done to those who are lost, those who are broken, those who are desperate and damned and demeaned in the life of a society? Now, I was here some years ago at Montreal. And I'm reminded today of a group of young people, African-American, who came down from Detroit. They came on a van. And they came inside of the gate. And I was called to come to see them in the same parking lot right back here. These young people came here, and they were from inner city Detroit, most of them from a poor African-American Presbyterian church, they were not prepared and prepped for what they were going to see when they came here. And so they came and asked me to come out and talk with them. And literally, they could not get off of the bus. And I got on the bus, and I started talking to them. And their leaders were saying, see, there's someone here that looks like you. What an introduction. Uh, but I digress there. The significant piece of this was they had never been exposed outside of inner city Detroit. They wore the banner of Presbyterian on Sunday morning, but their life was stifled in another space. I worked with them all week. I was preaching that week, and I, I, I would come over and we pulled some of them out of small groups, and I sat with them that whole week and just worked with them all week long about the realities of living in the world. Uh, you may not experience this culture now, but there is a day where you will, and the question is how you prepare yourself for it. We worked hard all week with their leaders right here, right here at Montreal. And I will never forget on that Thursday night when we were getting ready to do communion, uh, that day they came to me and they said, uh, can we sing a song tonight in worship? Now that was a loaded question for me at the time. Because I didn't know what they were going to sing. And so I asked them, I said, what are you going to sing tonight in order? What do you want to sing? And they said, it is a song of the church that we sing. And our advisor said that it would be, it would be appropriate for the worship tonight. But we want to sing it, but we don't want you to know. Now, we're at Montreat. You don't come to Montreal and do anything unless everybody knows what you're going to be doing. <laughs> I convinced a few people around here to let them sing. I had to ask several questions. Uh, is it in the hymn book? They said, no. They said, I said, is it in the hymn book? They said, no, not in the Presbyterian hymn book, but it's in a hymn book. <laughs> okay, what hymn book is it in? They said, well, if we tell you that, then you may know what the song is. We went through this thing for about an hour, and I struggled with them. You, got, you have to tell me something. 
And they finally said to me, it is a song that we have been singing all week long, all week long, to keep our spirits high in this place and to be reminded that the Lord is in charge of both our going and our coming. And so that night, I, as I said, I convinced some people to let it happen. And when they got up to sing at communion that night, the song that they sang was an old African-American hymn entitled, The Storm is Passing Over. And the storm that they were talking about was not the storm of Montreat. It was a storm that was in their soul for the lack of exposure to being able to be in such a place. And the levels of intimidation felt and the uncomfortable nature. But as the days went on and they engaged and encountered other young people just like them, the days went on and they saw a caring and loving community. They could sing and that Thursday night before leaving on Friday or Saturday, they could say, the storm is passing over. And give legitimacy not only to the faith, but to the work in this place. I want to suggest this morning that this really is the work of faith. It is how we build community. It is how we connect across the lines of demarcation. It is learning and knowing one another's struggles, but recognizing that there is a human possibility of bringing people together through the faith that we share. But it is risky. It is risky. At our last General Assembly, we went into the streets of St. Louis as we were sitting with that group over a period of time and we said we want to do something justice related and we had something in mind when we went there. We wanted to deal with the police shootings that we had heard about in St. Louis. And the folks sitting around the table, including two Presbyterians, one happening to be the dean at the seminary there, said to us, we don't want to do anything about police shooters because we're doing something every day here in St. Louis. We meet every day at 12 o'clock, and we get people there because we tweet the location of where we are going to be, and we have been doing that every day since Michael Brown's killing. We got that one covered. What we need the Presbyterian Church to do when you come here is to come and deal with the cash bail system here. I knew what bail was, but I didn't know the system. And we discovered a lot sitting around that table in St. Louis with people from the life of that community telling us and sharing their stories. We came to recognize that the cash bail system in the United States once you ask for bail in order to get out from a misdemeanor crime so that you can go to work the next day, they automatically give you a guilty sentence so that when you come back to court, you're really trying to get out of having already pleaded guilty. It is a money mill. It is a trap. It preys on the poor. And every now and then it catches someone who really doesn't belong in that. 
system. And a part of the challenge they wanted to raise in St. Louis was that it was a trap for too many who had been lost and left out and left behind. And so we orchestrated with them, and it was not easy. We had to pull and tug back and forth. They wanted ownership of the process. We are the Presbyterian Church USA. What do you mean you want ownership? Do you know there are going to be commissioners coming here who have never been in a march in their life? They're saying they're going to get clergy collars and we want to do this for the first time and we have to march down the street with you in charge if you're going to do it with us. And if we're going to legitimize it, you must. Lesson learned. We'll do that. At a car dealership in a place called uh, Houston, Texas with my daughter. She purchased her first car and wanted her daddy to negotiate for I'm glad I didn't have to pay for it. But um, I got a call saying, Jay Herbert, they said if we're going to march with a permit, it's not going to be a march. They have marched every day in St. Louis without a permit since Michael Brown's killing, and they're not going to ask the police for permission. These are their streets, they're saying, not the police's street. What? Are you kidding me? We had three or four conversations with community leaders there, with the conversation moving, and eventually recognized that two weeks before the assembly, we couldn't cancel it because we had put out the notifications to our people and they were going to get clergy collars now. What was left for us was to have to trust that the community, the community could lead us. If that wasn't enough, we got to St. Louis and the police department sat with us for two and a half hours trying to renegotiate everything in the march that we were going to do. You can't come back to the convention center and gather after it's over. All of these kinds of things they were throwing in the way. And finally, we started talking about the Lord and not talking about how we would uh, see all of these things happening in order. And yet, they began, a man sitting there in that moment who was over the convention center said, do you know our former police officer, our former police, police chief? I said, yes, I know him. He's a member of Cope Brilliant Presbyterian Church. And he said, yeah, we've been good friends for a long time. And I, I believe you have to walk in the name of the Lord. And the next thing that happened after that, he said, you can come back to the convention center anytime you want to. Bring all the folks back. Just in that moment, the Lord was at work. And if that was not enough, the police were arrested and could not say anything else because this man had broken rank with what was taking place. Speaking truth and love the power, but yet speaking of what the Lord can do. And if that was not enough, we marched on that day, a peaceful demonstration $60,000 given to person, the vetting agent there to be able to get people out of jail who were on bail bond and they were not high risk. Not only that, to hear someone at the end of the day who was leading the march all the way from the center, all the way down, he led us there 
to the jail. Hear him look with tears in his eyes and say to us, there have been two other church conventions that have come to this city this year. You all are the third, and you are the only ones that left anything to the life of the community. I'm not here to brag today. I'm here to let you know that if we are going to be transformers of this present reality, we have to hear the words of James. And that is the recognition that our calling is no longer to be high church. Our calling is no longer to be those who distance themselves from the poor. Our calling is no longer to hand out on the street and then go back home. Our calling, if we are to be the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, is to be the church that will stick and stay and walk by faith and not by sight. And that takes courage. That takes courage, my friends. That takes courage. And I've shared all across this country that we're not dying, we're reforming. We're becoming what God wants us to be in the 21st century, not the 20th and 19th century. We're dealing with the contextual realities we face, not with those that make us comfortable. And we are having to learn to follow some who may have less but have more in terms of understanding the power of the investment in their lives and the lives of a community. That's really what Jesus was about. That's what Jesus was about. And that's why he sat with those who were kicked out of the community. That's why he walked by faith and not by sight. That's why... He spent time telling temple leaders that they too needed to get beyond their temples and stand in the places where transformation could take place in people's lives. And that's really today what James is talking about. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be the rich in faith? and to be heirs of the kingdom of God, that he has the poor in the world to be the example upon which the promise can be given. I'm convinced that we have to get back to doing the work of faith, to claiming the power that is already ours, to stop lamenting over losing members and splitting churches, to stop worrying about not having what we used to have in money and in members, and to recognize that this has never been about an enterprise. This has always been about the kingdom of God, the relationship we have with God and the relationship we have in faith to believe even when there's nothing left to believe. I close the day by simply saying this, the world is ours. It has been given to us by God as a gift, and we have an opportunity to make a difference. But it will not happen sitting on our lawn in our lawn chairs. It will not happen simply worshiping God on Sunday morning and then returning to business as usual until the next Sunday. 
It will not happen if we believe the road is easy. No, Jesus reminded us that there was a cross involved. And it is not going to be bestowed upon us. We must take it up. Take it up ourselves. Take it upon ourselves to be transformers of the present reality. To give hope to those who are dying on the vine. But even more than that, to recognize that it may be them today, but it's going to be us tomorrow. going to be the elderly. It's going to be the disadvantaged. It's going to be the those who didn't make enough on their job to get a check big enough to carry them through retirement. It's going to be those who are struggling, trying to pay back debt for years and years and years of multiple children trying to get through college. You see, it's no longer about just the poor in the United States. It's about all of us. And I am convinced that it is all of us getting serious about what it means in this day and age to take our faith seriously and to be those whom God has chosen to do the work in this present day. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case.